0: Now, there's a well-known phenomenon in America that's quite common. It's called uh, the midlife crisis. The stereotype of this would be a, a man, typically a man, some women go through this, but in his middle age, between 40 to 50 years old, and he begins to look back on his life. He begins to see that he's getting older, and he's getting nearer to the time of death. He's lived most of his life prior to this thinking that he's invincible, But during this period, he begins to look at his life and compare it to others, compares it to his neighbors and sees that maybe they have a bigger house, or that others have a bigger bank account than him, or that his career hasn't gone the way that others' career has been. Or even he looks at family and sees that his kids aren't as successful as other children that he sees by his own standards. Or even he measures himself against his own goals but he begins to be disillusioned because he sees that his life is not working out as he planned it to be or it's not working out as he's seen his neighbors lives work out and they begin to fall into depression disillusionment and starts to look to the wrong things for hope to to fill the void with material things or with immorality but we aren't called to live in light of our neighbor we're not even called to live in light of our own goals and dreams We're called to live in light of our God. And Moses, he takes us to see this looming reality of death, the brevity of life. And ultimately, he doesn't compare us to the goals that so often we set, but he compares us to God. He looks at man in light of God. So, if you will, turn to Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. In the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years are our, of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let us pray. Lord, you are our dwelling for all generations from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, we will return to the dust. We thank you that you are our creator, God, sovereign and in control. I pray that you will help us to number our days, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I pray that you will open our ears and our hearts to your word, to the message that you have for us today. I pray that your spirit would give me boldness. I thank you for your great grace and mercy. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Now, as as Moses is, is praying this prayer in Psalm 90, you can see Genesis 2 and 3 in the background so clearly. The fall, creation and fall. The punishment, the just punishment upon man that we will die. In Psalm 90, we see this relationship between sin and death, an eternal, holy God and finite man, that we are temporary. And at first glance, it seems like there's, there's little hope in this text. It seems like a dark text. Because he looks at man and he says that he will return to dust, that we live out our days in wrath. But the hope is God, our perfect creator, who is everlasting. Who is man unto him but nothing? We desperately need God as our eternal dwelling place, as Moses calls God, his eternal dwelling in all generations Moses addresses our desperate state, yet he reminds us of the hope and grace that we have in God. In verse 1, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Most likely, this is written later in the time of Numbers, during the wanderings, when the people of Israel were facing judgment in the desert. The entire generation was to die off in the desert because of their failure to trust God and his promises. So forty years in the desert, Israel has had no home. They're just wandering. And what's Moses' perspective? He says in verse 1 that he that God has been our dwelling place. That though Israel has no home, though the people of God have been in exile for their own punishment, that their dwelling place is God. He understands that their dwelling wasn't Egypt. It's not even that promised land that they're going to. It's not the Davidic kingship, the throne that they will one day receive. Moses understands that the dwelling place of the people of God is ultimately God, our father. And even though Israel is homeless, God is their home. And it's much like the story of the prodigal son. For him to be home was for him to be back with his father. And even though Israel has this varied history, the punishment in the desert, the soon to be on the throne, they will lose the throne again because of their own punishment. They'll go into exile. They will lose the temple. The temple will be destroyed. They'll be crushed by the nations. One day restored and ultimately restored in Jesus Christ. But still, this home has always been God. Whether Israel was going through their ups or their downs, through the good times or the bad, God was their home. It's easy for us to make this world our home. This this temporary life that we have, it's easy for us to begin to to put our hope in these fleeting things of this world. But Moses challenges us to put our hope in God as our dwelling place. And he can say that that God is the dwelling place for all generations because he understands that God is eternal. He says in verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is Moses. We have the Genesis account because of Moses. If anyone understands our creator, God, I believe it would be Moses. He wrote that account for us. And he understands, Moses understands that even before the mountains, from everlasting to everlasting, there was God and there is God. There always will be. This statement is just packed with Moses' knowledge, how Moses has experienced God. He understands the glory of our Creator God. And then he turns to man in verse 3. We can't understand ourselves apart from God. So often we try to understand man apart from God and we come to the wrong conclusions. But Moses compares us to God and it's a sobering reality. In verse three Moses says, "You return man to dust and say, "Return, O children of man." Moses turns from God to man. The first two verses we see Moses praising God as this eternal everlasting dwelling place and now in verse three, it's already looking bleak that man will return to dust. This is Genesis 3:19, turn with me there. This is the curse. Adam and Eve disobeyed against the holy creator God that had made them. In Genesis 3, verse 19, we see part of their punishment. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. This is exactly what Moses is reflecting on. Here in verse 3 of Psalm 90, he's reflecting on the reality that man will return to the dust that our God created us from. Our God is infinite, everlasting. Moses is comparing us to this God, and when he turns to us, he says, we are but dust. We will return to this dust. We will be buried in it when we pass. Now, we live in a culture that it touts being open-minded and, and inclusivity, but try bringing up the topic of death. People will get uncomfortable. It's something they try to avoid. They don't want to talk about it. We ignore this present reality, and quite often the church adopts this main mi- this same mindset, that the church even looks at death with the wrong mentality. But if we look back through church history, that's not how Christians have viewed death in the past. It had been an ever present reality throughout so many generations. The Puritans, they wrote books on how to die well. It's an inescapable fate that Moses is drawing our attention to. He's drawing our attention to the fact that we will return to the dust. And in verse 4, he tells us that it's a fate that is coming quicker than we would like to acknowledge. It says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Our days are but short. Time is but nothing to God. God's perspective on time is beyond anything we could ever comprehend. We even can look at the oldest man, Methuselah. He almost made it to a thousand years. But Moses tells us here, but a thousand years are but yesterday when it's past to God. So even someone like Methuselah, who can live so long, he can witness so much, it's but nothing to God. To us, a thousand years is so much. Kingdoms rise and fall. But to God, it's but a watch in the night, as Moses describes it. He's putting the entire human condition in context, in context of the reality that our lives are short. And he continues in verses 5 and 6. Saying you sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning in the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening, it fades and withers. He talks about how man is swept away by the flood, and i can 't help but reflect on the flood account in Genesis again, this is Moses writing here this is Moses who who wrote that account for us. he understands. What God was doing in this flood. Who is man? God wiped away an entire generation, saved one family during the time of the flood. And it was only through his provision that that one family survived. Moses is saying, Who is man? How can man withstand the judgment of God that is coming? And like a dream, he says, like a dream. Man is like a dream that's gone in the morning. Or it's like grass. In the morning, this grass flourishes, it's renewed, but in the evening, it fades and withers. Now, one thing me and Amelia noticed when we moved out here from California is that the grass is green all summer. It was really odd to us. In California, all the hills are brown. That's why it's called the Golden State. You drive through during the summer, and the whole state is gold from the dead dead grass all across the hills. You come here, and it's beautiful, green. And we looked around, we figured, well, everyone must have sprinklers, but no, it just rains all summer here. But in California, if you don't have sprinklers, you don't water your lawn, it'll be dead by the first week of summer, it'll be dead. And even during the summer, if you don't water it almost every day, by the afternoon, it will be dead. I think that's the reality that Moses is drawing our attention here. He's saying, like the grass that, that, that looks great in the morning, that the morning dew has, has given it water, And it looks beautiful and green. By the end of the day, after a hot, sunny day in the Near East, that grass would be dead and withered. And Moses is saying that's what our life is like, that it just fades and withers, that it passes so quickly in a blink of an eye. And we are prone to think that this is a harsh fate, right? Moses, Man, Moses is really being negative here. But Moses tells us this is a just fate. In verse 7, he says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. So often we fail to recognize that there's a direct correlation between our sin and death. That's a just punishment from a holy, infinite God that we rebelled against. D.A. Carson, one commentator, he puts it this way, We are all living under a sentence of death. And he says, we are all terminal cases. All of us. We're all living under a death sentence. Even as believers, we still will face that punishment of Adam and Eve in the garden. That original sin. We will still face that punishment. We live under this death sentence. It's a short life. And we must. It's, and this death is a reminder that we stand under God's wrath. Moses is linking death with sin and he's taken us back to this garden reality we should never think of death apart from this message that God is teaching us something even with death but as believers in Christ we can be so grateful that the wrath of God was put on another that though we deserved wrath that in Christ the wrath of God fell on another it fell on his son the only one who could sustain God's wrath who died on our behalf, who was our substitute in our place. And why is God's wrath coming down here? He tells us in verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. He's saying we have no excuse. When we stand before a holy God, we have no excuse. God knows our sins, not just the sins that other people see. Not just even the sins we acknowledge. He's saying he knows our secret sins, the sins of our heart, the sins that we can hide from others. Moses is saying that in God's presence, we will not stand. He set his iniquities before us. Nothing can be hidden from the just judge. It says these days, they're short. These days under God's wrath are short in verses 9 and 10. He says, for all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone and we fly away these years in a fallen world are tough we face loss we face hardship we can toil and labor we can build up our kingdoms in this life but for what Moses says we fly away it will all end. There's one thing that we all have in common it's that we will all die. No man can escape sin and death. Even in this short life, he says 70 to 80 years, even in America today with all of our technology and everything, I looked at it around 78 years of age is about the average still. So Moses is telling us, that we need to number these days. We need to understand that these days are short. That to God, this is but yesterday. And in verse 11, it begs the question, do we have the appropriate fear? Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who can grasp the power and anger of our God? Do we fear him as we should? Do we recognize him? in light of who he is compared to who we are as man. Moses is humbling us here. He's teaching us that in light of God, we are but nothing. Isaiah understood this. In Isaiah 6, he sees a vision of God high and lifted up on his throne, and he says, "Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among men with unclean lips." He understands it, that he is in the presence of a holy God. And in the presence of a holy God, he could never stand. Who considers this power and wrath according to the fear of you? Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He reflects on his life. He sees how he has put his stock in so many false things, in women, in money, in his kingdom building, in so many of these fleeting things that left him just wanting more. But at the end, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon understands it. He says this, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon understands that all that stuff that he put his life into was nothing. He reflects on his entire life and says, this is the whole aim of man, to glorify God, to to fear him and to follow his commandments. And that's the type of fear that Moses is desiring out of us here that we would understand God, understand his wrath and his anger and fear him and follow his commands and live for him. And in verse 12, I believe it's, it's the climax of where we're headed. Because we ask ourselves, but what about us who fear the Lord? We're talking about going back to the earth, uh, going, going back and dying and how lo- short our life is. But what do we do if we know these truths? If we know that we are dying, we know that God's wrath is being poured out, but we know that we are in Christ and that we have been saved and redeemed by his blood. I think Moses tells us what to do next. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying, in light of all these things, in light of the fact that God is everlasting, in light of the fact that our lives are brief, He's saying, in light of all these things, God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to recognize that our days are short. Give us a heart of wisdom. God help us to live in light of our end. That's how we're called to be how, how we're called to live as Christians, to live in light of the end. To live in light of the fact that this life is short. And if we number our days, we'll stop living as if we were from everlasting to everlasting. Instead, we would live as if God is from everlasting to everlasting. We would reject the false sense of security that we are so prone to. It is so easy for us to get this false sense of security in this life. That's what the world teaches us to do. To put our faith in this world rather than in the things of God. And Moses is praying that we would live holy lives under God's wisdom. And I think he's teaching us two things here the first thing that he's teaching us is that we must understand the brevity of life. That's what he's been showing us here is that we must understand that life is brief. And the second thing he's teaching us is to live each of those brief days for God. To first understand that life is brief and then to live in light of it for God. And this reality should guide us to faithful living. As we recognize the cost of our salvation is we recognize the work that God has accomplished through Christ. And we recognize that the end of days is coming. We would live faithful lives by counting our days. Now, there's a lot of things in this life that we're taught to count. Right, We're taught to count our bank accounts to pay attention to that. You can get apps for that. You can follow your bank account all day long. Or maybe you're counting down the years you have left till retirement. Or maybe you're counting the days until you graduate. Or the days until your next vacation. Right? The world teaches us there's so many of these important things that we need to count down to. But what if we took the time to count down and number our days? Now, I don't mean that we get a calendar out and we try and speculate what day we might die. I don't think that's what Moses is getting at here. But Moses is, is calling us to really seriously question our lives what we're doing with the days, these short days. What would it look like if we as a church began to number our days, to see them as more valuable but also more short than we've ever imagined, like Moses is calling us to do? Fisherville, we don't have enough days in our lives to waste them. That's what Moses is warning us of. Now, I think it could be helpful sometimes to look at what disobedience to an instruction would look like. It would look like this. It would look like someone who's living as if they won't die. Or they live in denial of their death, right? We all know people like that, that if you, you bring up death or you bring up how life is short, they just don't want to talk about it. They just change the subject or they deny it. Other people, they just ignore the coming judgment. Some people approach it wrongly. In another way, they recognize that life is short, and like a hedonist, they just live to please themselves. A lot of people have the the philosophy of you only live once, right? So live it up. So just engage in whatever pleases you, whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you delight in this life. But that's not what Moses is telling us to do here. And Jesus warns of this same thing in Luke. If you will, turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. I think this is an account of someone much like what we're looking at here, who is disobedient to the reality that we should number our days. Be in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. It's the parable of the rich fool. Verse 16 of chapter 12. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This fool has been laying up treasure for himself. He is, he is looking forward to this retirement, towards this relaxation. Talks about how he has done these things. He has, he has accrued all these grains and he will build these storehouses. And, and God is nowhere in this picture. And he's just counting his resources and enjoying the the fat of the land and not giving credit to God. Not understanding that his life will be called of, of him. Not living in light of the fact that this life is short. That we're not just called to amass our wealth and then just sit back and enjoy our lives. Moses is challenging this idea. He's saying in verse 12, teach us to number our days. The fool fails to number his days. That's what Moses is telling us. He's saying, to have a heart of wisdom, we would understand this. So to not understand this would be foolishness. To not understand that our lives are short. And as we learn to number our days, Moses tells us to look to God, that he will be our source of mercy. And in verse 13, he says, return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servants? He's praying that God would return to them. He's saying, God, in your punishment of our rebellion, return to us. As I said earlier, this is most likely late in the book of Numbers, where they are hoping to go into the promised land, but this entire generation must die off first. They are literally living in light of God's wrath every day. Every day they understand their disobedience. And Moses is pleading for mercy, saying, God, return to us. How long? How long will we live in your punishment? It's only God who can deliver us from our hopeless existence. It's only him that we can look to. And that's what Moses understands in the desert. He understands that he can look to nothing else but his God. His God is the only thing that they can look to for mercy, for deliverance. Moses, the great mediator, is pleading on behalf of the people. We've seen this before in Exodus, as Pastor Brian's been preaching, that that Moses is this great mediator who stands before God for the people, pleading for mercy for the people. He's pleading for mercy and and for joy in the Lord. We see this in verses 14 and 15. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. He's saying, God, though our days are short, renew your mercies. During this short life, renew your mercies. He is our only satisfaction. He is the only way that in this life we can have joy. From verse 1, Moses understands that in our affliction, only God will be our dwelling place. Only God will be our safe haven. He's saying, God, though we are afflicted, make us glad. Make us glad in our affliction. Is that not what God does? As we look to Him in our affliction? That our joy will be from him. This entire generation will languish and die. They even know this. God has told them that. But yet, they can be satisfied in the Lord. Even in these wilderness wanderings, even in this time of judgment, Israel can be satisfied in the Lord. Praise God for that. That though they were disobedient, they can look to their sovereign God for deliverance. And in the desert, they come to know their God intimately. They receive the law from him. He reveals himself to them. He shows how faithful he is to provide for them during this time of judgment. And it's in our affliction that we see the gracious hand of God displayed so brightly, so magnificently. As we are in our affliction, God is such a contrast to the struggles of this world. And he calls upon God to let us be partakers of his glory says in verse 16 let your work be shown that your servants to your servants and your glorious power to their children he's saying god that this generation would know the true and living god that they would that they would know you deeply and intimately for generations right this generation had seen so much of god's work they had witnessed the plagues in egypt they had witnessed god smite the gods of egypt Part the Red Sea. Deliver them even in the wilderness. Providing for them every day. Providing faithfully to them. He displayed his glory to them on Mount Sinai. And now he's saying, God, show yourself to their children. He's praying that their children would come to see the power on display that they have seen. I think that Moses Prayers were answered so abundantly. If we look at the generations of Israel, God has displayed His glory throughout Israel and most supremely in His Son, Christ Jesus, that the generations may know Him. God has revealed the fullness of who He is in Christ for the generations to know. So Moses' prayer here that the, the children would see this power has come to fruition. We are recipients of the blessings that Moses is praying here. And he concludes his prayer in verse 17, that these truths would be applied to their daily living. He applies all these realities to them. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands. He's saying, Lord, give value to our work. Though these days are short, give value to our work, Lord. In this short span of time, that we may be used for eternal impact. Moses recognizes that apart from God, his work will be useless. It will have no meaning. It will have no everlasting impact. That when you compare our work to an everlasting God, it comes up short every time. It's much like in Ephesians 2, where Paul glories in his God for two chapters. And then in verse 10, he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But then Paul goes on to say, Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Paul's saying there is that God has created us for his workmanship, for good works in Christ, that he's already prepared for us. Paul's just saying, go walk in them. God's already done it, go walk in them. He's saying, don't go do it in your own strength. Don't go do it the way that you think is fit, but go do it in the way that God has already established. Go walk in them. And that's what Moses is calling to us here. He's saying, let the favor of the Lord be upon us to establish the work of our hands, to establish our labor. Men come and go, but our everlasting God, his work never fails. His work never leaves us empty. He will display his glory and accomplish his purposes even through weak vessels like us. Like us men and women, he accomplishes his glory. It's how he works. And Moses understands this reality. He ends with a heartfelt plea to God that God would bless his work. And does God not answer his prayer that God would bless his work and the work of Israel? How mightily God blessed the work of Moses. We have the first five books of the Bible because of Moses. And this psalm here, Psalm 90. So much of of what we know of God was written by Moses. That he understood his God, that he had beheld his God. And he puts God on display for us. God is faithful to the promises. And to the the promises he makes to his people and the prayers of the elect. He is faithful to the prayers of Moses. But how did he get here? How did he get to this point where he says, establish our work? First, he understood who he was. He intimately knows and trusts his God. He understands that his God is everlasting. He understands that as man, that we are fleeting. That this life is short. And that it's only through the grace of God that our days can have purpose. And to be lived out with joy and peace and satisfaction. I think sometimes we need to step back. Out of this worldly focus that we get sucked into. And we need to recast the vision for our lives. Rather than looking at our lives in light of ourselves, in light of our goals, or in light of other people, those things will just leave us disillusioned. They'll leave us like the man in his midlife crisis, panicking because he hasn't achieved what he's wanted. But instead, we should live our lives comparing ourselves to our sovereign God. Not that we will be anything like him in our work, but living in light of who he is. As we live in light of who he is, it humbles us. It reminds us of our dependence upon him. And we need to recast our vision around our God. And when we live in light of this eternal God, it will teach us to number our days. To number our days and have a heart of wisdom. That's what I call us to do is to number our days, to look at our lives, to recognize that they are short, recognize that our days are lived out under the wrath of God, but only by His Son, that through His grace, through the mercy of Christ, that we can live to His glory. But that God would teach us to number our days. God would do a great work in our lives if we would humble ourselves to recognize that our lives are short, that God's just just punishment is still coming, that death will come but his grace, grace is sufficient. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your great grace and mercy. Despite our sin and rebellion, I thank you that you have displayed this mercy and grace, most ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would humble us. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to recognize that you are from everlasting to Everlasting that our lives are but yesterday to you. Help us gain a heart of wisdom. Let the favor of the Lord establish our work. I thank you for your grace and mercy. I ask all this in Jesus' name.